0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. Hope, hope, hopefully, you all had a very nice uh, a holiday weekend. Uh, certainly, the weather here in Connecticut was uh, fabulous, and, and that you're ready to tackle the, the fall that's coming up with uh, all the wonderful things that are, will happen, and, of course, all the challenges related to COVID-19. And uh, you know, just a reminder to everyone to be mindful of resurgence, be mindful that uh, we still have the virus in the community, Please do not lower your guard. Uh, Stay, you know, really following the guidelines. Uh, We've done really well in Connecticut so far for the past three or four months or five months. Uh, It is not the time to lower our guards. Please wear your masks, uh, use all the proper PPE, and and stay tuned as we give you updates on on what will happen uh, throughout the fall. Uh, But today we're gonna talk about something very different. Uh, Before I introduce Dr. Lau, who's our speaker today, just wanna remind you of two things which are very important. The first one is uh, uh, Nancy's run, which is something that we have been doing now for a number of years. And Dan Fisher is, uh, is charged with uh, this community event. And of course this year, unfortunately we can't have it uh, all gather in one place uh, in West Hartford. Uh, so we will do it virtually. And uh, you, can, you can do your run, it's a 5K. Uh, I hope you don't cheat, although Dr. Lau said he was gonna hire a professional runner to run for him and then maybe get the award this year. Uh, I'm, that's fake news. So please don't, don't, don't listen to me on that. Uh, there, there is a website you can go on, please, uh, in the Connecticut Children's Foundation, and, and please register. Uh, it, it's a free registration, but with a donation. I've already done that this past weekend. And then you have, uh, I believe, till the 13th of September to do your run, your 5K run. You log it in, you send it in, and uh, there'll still be a competition for that. Uh, more, more importantly, it really is the ability for us to fundraise for kids. And this is a uh, a, a fund that actually supports the inner city kids. And that's something that Nancy really cared deeply about. And so I, I urge all of you to register. Uh, you can walk it, you can crawl it, which, whatever you wanna do for the 5K, but please log in and show the support for the children in the city of Hartford. Uh, that's the first thing. And then on Friday, we have uh, uh, Dr. Shriver is back after a five week break. And uh, we have the Ask the Experts uh, session. I think you will get some updates of what's going on with COVID-19. Uh, we'll keep doing this every Friday for the foreseeable future. And this Friday, we will have our Danbury uh, uh, colleagues uh, who will join us as part of the grand round. So, so that's another uh, plus to, to the event. So again, thank you for joining us. So let's move on to uh, introduce uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Ching Lao. And uh, uh, I think all of you who know Ching, what defines him is his smile. Uh, he, he will uh, always be smiling, no matter what. And uh, of course, he comes into my office asking for additional grant support you know he wants three million dollars does it with a smile so of course you have to give him the money how can you not Um, and but it's really somebody who is formidable who we've been we were very lucky to recruit ching back in 2016 it it only seems like yesterday ching that you came to connecticut and you feel like you've been here for for a while and i'm so glad that you're with us Uh, he is a a world-renowned cancer researcher uh, and he uh, focuses his research in brain tumors and osteosarcoma uh, since joining 2016 he really has uh, changed our division and, and what we do here in Connecticut for children with, with cancer. Uh, he serves as the division of head uh, of the Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders and, the, and also the Martin J. Gavin Endowed Chair of Hematology and College at Connecticut Children's. Uh, uh, if you remember Marty was our, our former CEO and, and, uh, and in honor of his service uh, we created this uh, endowed chair uh, on behalf of, of Marty and, and Ching is the first one that serves under that chairmanship. He also serves as professor at the Jackson Labs for Genomic Medicine and the head of the Division of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology in our Department of Pediatrics. Uh, Of real importance, uh, Cheng holds the first joint appointment uh, that we made here at Connecticut Children's with with JAX and UConn and representing the three institutions. And great things are really occurring as a result of that. Uh, So it is uh, really. Uh, uh, I'm really honored uh, to introduce Ching uh, to give this Grand Rounds, and the title of his presentation will be 2020 Perspectives of Pediatric Oncology. I think you will all enjoy this presentation. We will have time for questions at the end, so uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Dr. Lau, if you can come up to the podium. I'll move your water back up.
1: Thank you, Dr. Salas, for the uh, introduction, and also thank you for the uh, opportunity to uh, give this talk during the month of uh, Childhood Cancer Awareness. Let's see, are we moving the slides? So September actually is the uh, month for not only childhood cancer awareness but also uh, sickle cell disease awareness as well. So usually September is a very busy month for uh, he monk So we dedicate this uh, talk to the uh, celebration and observance of the uh, childhood cancer awareness. So I entitled uh, today's talk as uh, the 2020 perspective of pediatric oncology, obviously playing with words. Uh, the 2020 obviously marks the, uh, the uh, second decade in this century, and I thought that it's time to give a, an update, as well as a, a progress report and record uh, for our own um, advances in this field. But also to point out that the whole field is moving towards more precise uh, definition of uh, pediatric cancer as well as more uh, personalized type of uh, treatment. Hence the 2020 with a slash in the middle. Uh, First of all, some sobering statistics. Uh, Cancer is still the uh, number two leading cause of death in children ages 1 to 14 after accidents. So altogether about 1,200 children under the age of 15 I expected to die from cancer in the year 2020. Uh, Here's a graph to show the uh, variation in terms of the five year survival rate among different types of pediatric cancers. Overall, I think we have made quite a bit of progress uh, because we are curing about 85% of pediatric cancers. Uh, But obviously there are some cancers that do better than the others, for example, Uh, Leukemia, lymphoma is, in general, uh, better than solid tumors. Uh, Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, for example, we're curing more than 90% of these children. But acute myeloid leukemia is not doing as well, and that's why there's still a lot of work to be done. Hodgkin lymphoma does much better. We're almost curing all of them. We're up to that now close to 98% cure rate. Uh, non Hodgkins, is doing just as well, but trailing a little bit behind. But the solid tumors are not doing as well. For example, uh, bone tumors, we are still stuck at about 70%. uh, And um, neuroblastoma, we're still struggling to get it above 80%, for example. Uh, Brain tumor, which is what I also focus on, uh, we're still struggling with some subtypes of of, uh, brain tumors, but we're making some progress as you would see uh, altogether, I think the solid tumor uh, wombs tumor is the most uh, encouraging uh, disease that we, we are dealing with right now we 're getting close to ninety seven percent cure rate with that disease. Um, because uh, pediatric cancers happen uh, fairly early on in life, and therefore, if you calculate the years of life lost to cancer. Uh, there's a disproportionate uh, loss of uh, years in childhood cancer uh, up to 68 years versus all the other adult cancers are less than 20 years. So this is uh, Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, so obviously we have to remind ourselves uh, the kind of volume of disease we are dealing with. So every day there are 43 kids uh, in the United States that will be diagnosed with cancer. Uh, totaling about 16,000 per year in the U.S. and about 300,000 in the world. And the five-year overall survival, as I pointed out earlier, uh, in 2019, it's close to 84 percent. So that represents one out of eight children uh, would not uh, be able to survive that disease. Now this compared with 1970s is quite a bit of progress already those uh, pediatricians out there who took care of children that were unfortunately diagnosed with cancer back in the 70s remember that uh, even uh, disease like acute lymphoblastic leukemia that we can readily cure today uh, it's almost like a death sentence uh, when a child was uh, uh, given that kind of a diagnosis at that time. Again, I always like to show these curves because it tells us that we are making steady progress uh, over the last four decades. So for example, this is uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. As you could see, the survival curves continue to improve over the years, starting with the late 60s, through consistent uh, collaboration um, among hospitals that take care of children with cancer. And as you see, we are now up to greater than 90% survival but again compared with uh, solid tumors uh, we still have a lot of work to do Uh, even though we are still making very steady progress but compared to diseases like ALL uh, we are lagging behind quite a bit in terms of uh, survival rate. So what contributes to the improved outcome in the last few decades? I always like to summarize it with the following uh, points. Uh, Foremost is the multidisciplinary approach to patient care. There's no um, cancer that we can manage by one uh, specialty. So at Connecticut Children's, we're doing uh, the typical approach, which means that uh, physicians and uh, other uh, care providers will come together and we figure out the most optimal plan uh, for treating these diseases. And with the steady progress in each of the discipline that participates in the care of the patient, together we make uh, uh, strides in uh, improving the, ke- uh, the outcome of the patients. Obviously, we now have better diagnostics, both imaging as well as in the clinical labs. Uh, this also is uh, spurred by the uh, recent advances in genomic research, which translates to uh, some very powerful uh, clinical assays as you will see later. Obviously, we have better surgery now. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder of my uh, surgical colleagues. If I try to describe their progress, I'm going to (laughs) make all kinds of uh, omissions and mistakes. So I will leave it up to them to one day report to us their progress. Uh, We actually have uh, much better ways of uh, making use of radiation therapy. I will just show you one slide later to illustrate this. Uh, We obviously have better systemic therapy as well, not just local therapy like surgery and radiation. And very importantly, we have been consistently engaged uh, in collaborative research, not only in North America, but globally as well, as you would see. And then As a result of these collaborative research, now we have much more efficient platforms for drug discovery. In the past, it's a very slow pace for uh, drug discovery for pediatric cancer, partly because we don't have access to uh, many new uh, agents like in adult cancer. But as you will see, um, uh, things have changed recently, uh, which is also another uh, major reason for us to be optimistic about the uh, further progress. Now, in terms of the platforms, I will show you later that uh, by developing better preclinical models, we are better at uh, predicting which uh, new agents would work uh, well with which kind of cancers. And then taking advantage of the uh, in silico methods that I will also show you, uh, we, we are very optimistic that things would move even faster in the next decade. So in terms of uh, better diagnostics, if you recall my grand round in 2017 after I arrived, I showed you how uh, our group as well as uh, other collaborating groups managed to define uh, the molecular subgroups of medulloblastoma, which is the number one malignant brain tumor in children, into four subgroups which subsequently became the consensus in the field. And so now clinically, we acknowledge that these are the four molecular subgroups, the wind subgroup, the sorry hedgehog subgroup, group three and group four. Now for a long time, we were struggling with this uh, molecular classification because clinically it's very difficult to do this type of classification based on gene expression profiling. Very few clinical pathology labs would be capable of delivering this in real time. So we were not actually implementing this type of uh, classification for a long time until we realized that there are different ways of uh, profiling these uh, tumors. One of them is to take advantage of the differences in the epigenetic dysregulation of the various types of uh, tumors. So here's a simple slide to show you that in addition to the coding sequence, which determines the amino acid uh, uh, sequence that makes up the uh, proteins, the human genome also has other ways of fine-tuning the uh, genetic activities of of the genes by taking advantage of some modifications that the the cells could make to the uh, DNA uh, itself but not changing the sequence. And that's why it's called the epigenetic uh, approach. So for example, on the top of this, you see the histone tail modifications. Histones are the proteins uh, in which the uh, DNA strand wraps around. And the tails of the uh, um, histone proteins can be modified by the cells to send a signal to the cells when to activate a gene or not then even if the gene is activated, there are still other ways to fine tune the activity by using these non-coding RNA, uh, one of which is the microRNA as you see on the second panel. And then finally, there's the DNA methylation uh, modification made to the DNA itself. And that is the cytosine residue in the DNA molecule can be uh, methylated. And the pattern of that methylation actually is quite unique From one tumor to another. So taking advantage of that kind of knowledge, uh, DNA uh, methylation profiling now becomes kind of the gold standard for doing uh, molecular classification of brain tumors now. So this is a figure taken from a 2018 paper that was published by the German group establishing that the uh, use of these microarrays that can profile the DNA methylation pattern of uh, CNS tumors. So here there are 91 WHO defined entities and using one simple method which takes only a day or so uh, they were able to completely classify these uh, brain tumors without reference to the histology which is kind of amazing. And so just to illustrate that I told you about medulloblastoma having four subtypes. Here it is the four subtypes can be easily classified by using one assay, which is DNA methylation profiling. Not only that they can subdivide the solid hedgehog uh, medulloblastoma. they can actually subdivide the solid hedgehog subtype into uh, children adult subtype versus the infant subtype, which is mind boggling. And we started uh, adopting this uh, in collaboration with the uh, German Center. Uh, and basically, this is the kind of re- report that we can generate based on the uh, profiling. And we can pin down not just medulloblastoma uh, diagnosis, but which subtype as well. And then it also gives us the, uh, let's see, it seems to stop moving. Oh, okay, thank you that it also gives us the uh, profile of the copy number changes, which with certain subtypes uh, can be uh, very important in making the uh, confirmation. So the other thing I wanna move into is the better radiation therapy as I uh, told you earlier, which is the proton beam uh, therapy. Uh, As you know, there are different types of uh, radiation primarily using either x-ray or photons versus uh, protons. This is a graph to illustrate the uh, deposition of energy as the particles traverse through the body. So as you could see with uh, x-ray, even before arriving at the tumor site, it already deposits a lot of of energy uh, to the normal tissue and also leave behind even more uh, damage after it has uh, hit the tumor, uh, what we call the exit dose, versus protons, which has a unique uh, uh, property that it would deposit almost all of its energy right at the time when it uh, stops at the uh, target site. And so there is very little exit uh, dose. I don't seem to be able to move my uh, – up. okay. Uh, Uh, So so these are the advantage of the uh, proton beam therapy. It gives you maximal energy deposition at the tumor site and minimal exit dose, which translates to even more tumor cell kill but with less damage to the normal tissues. Exactly what we are looking for uh, in treating uh, pediatric cancer patients because they are still undergoing a lot of normal growth and development. We cannot afford to have too much collateral damage to the uh, normal tissues around. And this is again a uh, diagram to illustrate the difference between photon uh, radiation therapy versus uh, proton, which is in the bottom. And you could see by the coloring uh, of the uh, field that gets the exposure that proton beam therapy is very, very clean, only affecting the target uh, areas and not in front of the targets or after the targets. Now this has been only talked about in theoretical terms for its benefit. For a long time we do not actually have outcome data to uh, confirm that this is indeed the um, advantage we would see if we use proton beam. But the last two years early uh, outcome data now become available. And it's clearly shown that if you use proton beam in treating pediatric brain tumor patients, for example, the IQ loss uh, over years uh, is significantly reduced by using a proton beam. So we're very excited about this. The only problem is um, right now there's no proton center in Connecticut. So we have to send our patients either to Boston Or to New York. So I just wanted to put in a plug to see if uh, we can work with other adult hospitals to start formulating plans to have our own uh, proton center because these children when they have to go to uh, um, Boston, for example, for six weeks to get these daily treatments uh, can be very disruptive to their family life as well. I need help advancing again. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, in terms of systemic uh, therapy, I just want to uh, illustrate this uh, by saying uh, these days immunotherapy is kind of in the uh, uh, center stage, uh, and there are different ways of uh, uh, developing uh, immunotherapy. For example, you can make use of antibodies. Uh, this is going back to our high school biology class now you know the antibody structure is uh, it has two uh, variable arms that determines the uh, uh, ability to recognize variation in the target proteins uh, anchored in the constant region uh, of the uh, uh, heavy chain and so When you make use of these antibodies, initially we always start with uh, mouse uh, antibodies because that's how we make the initial discovery. But obviously, mouse protein uh, is a foreign protein, so it would induce a lot of uh, immune response in the human body. And so, efforts have been made to systematically convert the mouse antibody into more human like to minimize the immunogenicity of these uh, proteins. And as you could see here, you can First, change the uh, constant region uh, into a chimeric antibody, and then you do more humanization of the antibody, and then until you finally get to the complete human version. Next slide, please. And then the alternative is to still make use of the uh, antibody binding uh, capacity, which is in the what we call the Fab fragment. But combine that with the other molecules in the T cell receptor complex to create these uh, molecules called chimeric antigen receptors or CAR. You see this all the time in uh, lay press these days. Uh, next slide, please. Keep, keep, yeah. So this cartoon at the bottom illustrates how you can actually take the antigen binding activity similar to that in the antibody. But convert it into a T cell receptor uh, complex that could still recognize the antigen on the tumor cells, but making use of the uh, cellular cytotoxicity that the T cells would offer to kill the tumor cells. Next slide, please. So, there are also other ways of integrating the antibodies and antibody binding domains into different therapeutics. For example, you can add a drug. Uh, that is cytotoxic to the cells and conjugate it to the uh, antibody itself. And then it's called the antibody drug conjugate or ADC. Uh, or you can make use of the antibody and convert it into what we call a T cell engager uh, by hooking it up with the uh, CD3 antibody, which recognizes the CD3 molecule and the T cells And now you have a molecule all of a sudden that can bring the T cells into close proximity to the tumor cells. You can even create these what we call bispecific T cell uh, engager or bite cell uh, uh, molecule. Instead of using antibodies, you can actually use the specific fragments of the uh, uh, tumor binding uh, domain versus the uh, anti-CDV. Yeah. And then I told you about the CAR concept. So you can also take these um, antibody binding domain and convert it into a T cell specific type of molecule. Now these are all for single uh, tumor antigen. Uh, People become very ambitious and start looking at uh, uh, targeting more than one uh, uh, tumor target at a time because sometimes tumor cells are able to escape the uh, activity of the immune uh, system uh, and therefore if you target more than one antigen at a time, your chance of uh, still killing the tumor cells is better. So here I illustrate that you can use uh, what we call tri-specific killer cell engager or trike. Okay? Um, and uh, there are various uh, versions of this if you really want to be sophisticated. And then, again, even the cars, you can be very uh, uh, innovative by not targeting only one antigen on the tumor cells. You can make two different uh, cars on the same uh, cell or one car that can recognize uh, uh, two different types of antigens. Uh, I heard a talk that talks about so many different cars we said, wait a minute, <laughs> what kind of talk is this? Are really we talking about car dealership or something? Anyway. This is just to give you an idea of where immunotherapy is heading. Next slide, please. Now obviously, you also heard a a lot about checkpoint blockade therapy, which is now in the the center stage in many adult cancers, such as melanoma. Um, Basically, tumor cells have a way to escape the activity of the cytotoxic T cells by expressing what we call the checkpoint ligand that gives the signal to the T cells that, hey, I am not a foreign cell, don't eat me, okay? So this is what the uh, checkpoint signaling is all about. Tumor cells can inhibit the T cell activation. Uh, Next slide, please. Um, So to overcome this, now we have uh, molecules that can interfere with the checkpoint ligand or the checkpoint receptors on the uh, T cells, and... For example, in melanoma, this is working out beautifully. Uh, Many people respond uh, uh, nicely to this type of therapy. Next, And uh, you can apply the same thing in combination with CAR T cells because T cells are T cells, even though the recognition molecule is CAR now. But tumor cells are still capable of interfering with the CAR T cell activity. And so you can... Uh, next slide, yeah. You, oops, sorry. You can actually now uh, make use of uh, the checkpoint blockade uh, inhibition type of uh, uh, strategies, combine that with CAR T cells, uh, which is now actually uh, yielding very positive results as well. Next slide, please. Now, to illustrate that this is not science fiction, we actually are seeing uh, positive clinical results uh, in pediatric cancers. For example, with neuroblastoma, it was discovered that there is an expression of this molecule called GD2 in on the surface of the uh, uh, neuroblastoma cells. By actually creating an antibody against this GD2 molecule on the neuroblastoma cell surface, we can make use of various strategies such as the uh, macrophage killing or granulocyte killing or even NK cell killing. Uh, next slide, please. And again, you can start thinking about using combination of strategies, not just uh, using the uh, GD2 antibody itself, but again, you can also convert that antibody binding activity into a car that could recognize the uh, neuroblastoma. So we already have therapy that are now routinely used in treating a neuroblastoma based on the anti-GD2 uh, concept. Uh, next slide, please. Now, you probably heard most about the CAR T cell against uh, pediatric uh, leukemia, which at one point uh, hit all the uh, headlines of major newspapers, including New York Times or Washington uh, Post, et cetera. And again, this is now becoming routine for certain types of uh, uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Basically, you take the patient's um, uh, T cells, uh, a patient typically has uh, either relapse or refractory B cell malignancy, and you create these anti CD19, which is the molecule expressed on the leukemic uh, cells, and convert the patient's own T cells into a CAR T cells. After you have accomplished that, you can infuse these uh, uh, engineered T cells back to the patient, and these CAR T cells would seek out the uh, uh, lymphoblastic leukemia cells and destroy them. Uh, uh, Next slide, please. So this is the actual first uh, patient that uh, received this uh, therapy. Name is uh, Emily Whitehead. Uh, She made it to all the uh, uh, headlines. Uh, The night that she was given the uh, CAR T cells, She was in the ICU, and everybody expected her not to make it that night, and so out of desperation, even though the CAR T-cell at that time was not uh, FDA-approved yet, um, she was given that as uh, experimental therapy, and miraculously, within 24 hours, she turned around. Uh, This is no no shortage of a miracle, medical miracle, but now... Uh, this particular CAR T cell is FDA approved. Uh, You can get it. Uh, Pharmaceutical companies are uh, manufacturing this and um, so this is now becoming routine but when we try to apply these uh, CAR T cell concept to treat uh, solid tumors we're not as lucky and we're still trying to figure out how to overcome this uh, intrinsic uh, resistance to this type of therapy among the uh, solid tumors. Uh, next slide please. So these are the efforts that are now ongoing again hoping that we could make use of the same strategies to treat uh, different types of uh, solid tumors. So this is a paper that just came out recently from the Stanford group again applying the same GD2 type of CAR T cells in treating a very difficult uh, to cure uh, type of uh, malignant uh, gliomas. Next slide, please. And you can also do a different type of engineering to make the T cell uh, receptors more easy to recognize the specific uh, mutation that these uh, uh, glioma cells have uh, undergone. And this is a a different paper from a different group from the UCSF group. Uh, Hideo Okada also came out within the last few years. Uh, showing uh, early success. Next slide, please. So these are all very encouraging news, uh, but we cannot rely just on immunotherapy alone to take care of all the patients with different types of cancers. So for a long time, my group and other collaborators have been focusing on developing small molecules that could also uh, take advantage of the genomic uh, findings to pinpoint the um, vulnerability of the uh, tumor cells. And in order to do that, the first thing we need to develop is these um, preclinical models that allow us to test the efficacy of the new agents that we've uh, discovered. So we spent almost 15 years developing a whole series of these uh, patient-derived xenograft models. But specifically, we wanted to do it orthotopically because Apparently, the microenvironment in which you implant the tumor tissue heavily influenced the behavior of the tumor cells to the point that if you use a PDX that is uh, established in a site that is foreign to the tumor cells, and when you use these models to test drugs, you could be misled because the behavior of the tumor cells have been altered by the uh, presence of the microenvironment. So this was a work that I collaborated with, with Xiaonan Li, who was my former postdoc. And we have quite a large uh, series of uh, PDX now, and this work is still ongoing here in Connecticut uh, at uh, Jackson Lab. Next slide, please. So this is just to show you that uh, we can monitor the growth of these uh, tumor cells in these uh, mouse uh, xenograft models. Next slide, please. And making use of um, In silico method is another uh, strategy that we adopted in the last 10 years or so. And that is why are we not taking advantage of the accumulating uh, data uh, from genomic analysis to ask ourselves, are there any drugs that previously FDA approved that could actually help with the tumors that we are uh, dealing with? So this is called drug repositioning strategy. Uh, The nice thing about this strategy is these drugs have been pre-approved by FDA. So we know a lot about these uh, drugs, including its pharmacokinetics profiles, its toxicity profile. And also because they have been approved, we know how to use them very safely. And so we took advantage of that strategy, make use of what we call systems biology approach, meaning that we do not focus on one gene, one mutation, or even one pathway in the cell. But we take into account the global uh, perspective of what has changed the overall behavior of the cells. This can be done with uh, in silico methods. And using this method, uh, next slide please, we were able to combine the expression uh, data that have been generated by pharmaceutical company out there to match the changes in the tumor cells with the drug perturbation effects. Next slide, please. And uh, this was done in collaboration with Stephen Wong, who was, um, who was at uh, Methodist Hospital when I was in uh, Houston. Uh, we made use of uh, uh, more than 1,100 cases of medulloblastoma to try to find drugs that can specifically target group three and group four subtypes, which are extremely difficult to cure clinically. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. And uh, yeah, you have to keep uh, clicking. Unfortunately, I can't do it. Okay, right there. (laughs) Uh, Using this method, we landed on a group of uh, agents called cardiotonic agents, which essentially are digitalis type of compounds for treating uh, cardiac diseases. Surprisingly, these agents are very active against group 3 and group 4 medulloblastoma. Next slide, please. And we quickly validated this uh, using uh, tumor cell cultures and demonstrate that they can uh, affect the survival of the uh, medulloblastoma cells at uh, sub-micromolar concentration. Next slide, please. And here's the... um, I see 50 uh, results demonstrating that with different types of medulloblastoma cell lines, you can actually um, uh, cause uh, cytotoxicity in nanomolar concentrations. Next slide, please. And then we very quickly reached back to our uh, PDX models that we have generated over the last 15 years and found group three and group four PDX models that we could make use of to do in vivo validation. Next slide, please. Uh, I probably won't have time to go through all the details. You can click several of them until we reach the left. Okay. Uh, And you could see that we actually are prolonging the life of the mice that are carrying these uh, xenografts uh, significantly. And we also check the uh, pharmacokinetic uh, properties and confirm that by using clinically relevant doses of digoxin, for example, we can achieve these uh, uh, prolongation of uh, the life of the mice. Uh, Next slide, please. And we also use uh, radiation as the standard of care to compare with uh, uh, digoxin. Again, uh, one more click, one more. And again, confirm that uh, it's even better to use digoxin in a PDX setting like this. Next slide, please. And we also extend the treatment with digoxin into a more uh, chronic type of uh, setting and found that to our pleasant surprise that it works even better by uh, using this approach than by using uh, very uh, high doses acutely, which gives us a possibility of actually now going to clinical uh, trials. Next slide, please. So so basically, we are now uh, preparing the protocol for the clinical trial of the in treating group 3 and 4 medulloblastoma. Uh, Dr. Isakoff from our division is actually spearheading that uh, clinical trial. The other thing we did is also using another approach of encyclical drug screening, and that is uh, teaming up with the IBM World Community Grid to create this Smash childhood cancer uh, consortium. Next slide which was launched in also 2017 after I arrived. And I just want to give you a quick update on where we are with this effort. Next slide, please. So the idea of this, uh, yeah, you can keep clicking until we finish the, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, So the idea is to make use of the uh, genomics and proteomics discovery engine to identify and validate the targets. And then very quickly, we do the structural analysis of the targets and then upload all the data into the world community grid run by IBM, which is actually a uh, crowd uh, source uh, type of approach. Uh, We have more than 800,000 volunteer CPUs that are made available to this grid for us to use when their owners' uh, uh, computers are idling at night. And so we are, one more click, please. And so we were able to screen more than 5 million chemical structures to try to match the structure of the target protein that we are, we are focusing on. And next slide, please. I'm very happy to tell you that we are now closing in on a disease called cranial pharyngioma, which currently has no available um, chemotherapy. And we found that 70% of these uh, tumors have the the same mutation in this uh, protein called beta catenin. And by doing the structural analysis, we were able to pinpoint where this protein interacts with its partner called TCF4. And by using that data, next slide, please, we were able to uh, upload all these data into the uh, World Community Grid and found uh, the right compounds. Uh, that could potentially interfere with the interaction between beta-catenin and uh, TCF4. Next slide, please. Uh, Keep going. Yeah, so this is the partial list of the compounds that the screening uh, uh, came up with. Next slide, please. And this is the uh, chemical structures of some of those compounds. So we are actually actively testing these compounds now in the laboratory. Uh, Dr. John Norco, who is our third-year fellow, is busy uh, doing this. Hopefully, uh, some of these will be confirmed to be effective. Next slide, please. Now, there are even more reasons to be uh, optimistic because, as I told you in the beginning of the talk, that previously we didn't have access to a whole lot of uh, uh, new agents that the uh, adult oncologists uh, have because of pharmaceutical companies reluctance to uh, test these in uh, the pediatric population while they are doing clinical studies uh, with the adult cancers. For a long time, we didn't have any means to, uh, to uh, change the, uh, the uh, situation until a number of uh, patient advocacy groups came to our rescue. And together, they finally uh, made it happen that now there is a uh, Race for Children's Act, which basically says that a pharmaceutical company has a potential targeting agent for adult cancers, if that same target is also available uh, in pediatric cancers, then pharmaceutical companies have an obligation to come up with a detailed plan to test it in pediatric cancers before they are allowed to do their phase three study in adult cancer. So now this is a real stick to the the pharmaceutical companies. And all of a sudden, every company is now coming to us and say, hey, uh, can we collaborate? (laughs) Let's let's do some studies with pediatric cancer. We said, oh, we're very happy to do that with you. So this act actually became effective uh, two weeks ago. So now it's a real law. And we are very excited about that, and we also want to show our appreciation to all the advocacy groups. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, So again, in my last talk to you, I also mentioned that we are working on something very different, and that is to try to understand the predisposition to pediatric cancers, taking advantage of some known epidemiologic data. For example, uh, CNS germ cell tumors, a very rare tumor on the Western world, but it's very common in Japan and East Asia. So we took advantage of that and collaborated with our Japanese colleagues. Next slide, please. And to make the long story short, we found a germline mutation in the Japanese population in the gene called JMJD1C, which actually, one more click, please, which gives them an odds ratio of 4.8. This is highly, highly significant. And that explains why the Japanese have such a higher incidence of this tumor. Next slide, please. We took this one step further now, now that we found something in the Japanese population, we want to find uh, if there's equivalent genetic predisposition in the Western world. So we teamed up with the NIH uh, consortium called Kids First, which allows us to do whole genome sequencing of a large number of samples. Next slide, please. And so we just finished the first cohort that we obtained from Children's Oncology Group. We're busy analyzing uh, these data. And next, we're going to look at the cohort from Japan and then from China uh, and Thailand as well. Total, we hope that we would have 800 samples from both of patients and their parents. Next slide. Then finally, I want to tell you other exciting things. And that is now that we have better survival, One of the pressing issues that we have to deal with is how do we deal with the long-term side effects that are caused by the uh, treatment itself. So a number of years ago when I was still at Baylor, we attempted to use a uh, candidate gene approach. Essentially, it's a guess whether there are some genetic predisposition to certain types of uh, side effects. in a way, we were somewhat lucky. We landed on this gene called glutathione s transferate, uh, the pi gene, and found that there is a germline variant uh, in some of our patients that correlate very well with uh, cisplatin-induced type of uh, uh, hearing loss. So we published that in 2012. But since then, we haven't been that lucky. <laughs> so now we have to use a very different approach, a more... Um, uh, Uh, general approach not to use uh, not to rely on uh, uh, candidate gene approach. Next slide please. And to do that we are teaming up with the investigators at Jackson Lab because they have created a genetically diversified uh, mouse uh, colony. The genetic heterogeneity rivals that in the human population. This gives us the opportunity to do these gene Uh, GWAS, uh, genome-wide association studies in animals within a a, a limited number and be able to make the initial discovery of what are some of the germline uh, variations that correlate with the um, treatment-induced toxicity. So almost one-third to one-half of our long-term survivors have one or more of uh, these type of toxicity, including hearing loss, uh, neuropathy, uh, infertility, uh, cardiotoxicity, uh, or even secondary uh, malignancies. Now these are not uh, science fiction again, next slide please, because the uh, Jackson lab investigators have already published uh, several years ago that using this approach, they can now find the genetic susceptibility to chemotherapy-induced bone marrow suppression. So we are very excited about this opportunity. And next slide, please. And in fact, uh, Dr. Olga salasa is already ahead of us because she already started collaborating with the Jackson Lab to study the genetic predisposition to anthracycline-induced cardiotoxicity in these, uh, in these mouse colonies and already with only 10 such strains of mice, she could identify that there is huge variation in terms of the uh, phenotype, suggesting that there is a genetic uh, component to uh, predispose these mice to the different uh, uh, severity of uh, these uh, uh, agents. Next slide, please. So I just want to end by saying that there are obvious reasons for optimism. Uh, as I only highlighted a few of them today. But the nice thing is moving forward, because now we have learned how to do these things in a much more efficient way. I anticipate that in the next 10 years, things are going to move even faster and faster, and we should be able to come up with uh, better treatments in a, in a realistic uh, time frame. For example, I just want to point out that we just got a paper accepted this week which took us only one year to figure out what a fusion gene in a very rare type of brain tumors is actually doing. I would say that if this has been 10 years ago, it probably would take me four or five years to figure that out. But in less than one year, we did it. I just want to end by uh, using this slide to remind ourselves that um, this is the uh, month of uh, childhood, Uh, Cancer Awareness. And I just want to say to the uh, children who happen to be watching this that um, we love you uh, even though sometimes you might think the doctors and the nurses are very mean people because we do nasty things to you. We hurt you. We cause you to have pain. But keep in mind that we have your best interests in mind. And we apologize for doing all these nasty things to you, but it's all because we love you and we want to save your lives. This is the best we could do right now, but I promise you that we will not stop looking for better ways to treat you that would uh, help you recover faster and with less discomfort, less pain. And certainly, less problems in the future. I also want to speak to the parents. And I want to applaud you for partnering with us to take care of your child with cancer. I know a lot of sacrifices that you have to make in support of these uh, treatment. And therefore, I want to use this uh, slide to remind ourselves why we have the Awareness Month And that is, after all, we are dealing with children uh, that are the patients. And this is a very good reminder that uh, we are all in this together and we need to participate in the advocacy for uh, this type of uh, uh, endeavors to make sure that none of our children who is inflicted with cancer would have to uh, suffer the, um, the uh, death or the um, potential side effects from the treatment itself. Thank you. I'll take uh, questions if there's enough time.
0: Thank you, uh, Ching, for, you know, a truly uh, outstanding grand rounds uh, and, and certainly for your, your comments at the end uh, regarding uh, our responsibility to the kids and to the parents, um, and grandparents, and family members that are part of that team. Um, but I also would, you know, want to make sure that I, uh, in, the, in behalf of uh, the Department of Pediatrics and Connecticut Children's, we, we thank you and your your team, uh, and you know those warriors up on the on the fifth floor and the eighth floor, uh, battling uh, every day to make sure that those kids survive. And uh, it's hard; it's very difficult work. Um, Lots of tears, um, but also lots of laughter and success, so, so thank you, and thank you for, uh, for believing in, in us and, and everyone in your team for that. So, we do have, uh, we have some time for questions, and, and I have, uh, there are several that come up. Um, the first one is, uh, so John Shriver, who's uh, our head of infectious disease, says, Ching, this is a great grand rounds, exclamation points. Um, and, and he just wants to point out to everyone that, uh, to, to your point, that this is not science fiction. This close friend of his was just cured from, and the answer is cured, underlined, from metastatic malignant melanoma with brain metastases uh, by use of the checkpoint immunotherapy. Uh, so what you're telling us is not science fiction and, and tumors that otherwise would not have been cured because of the tenacity of researchers like you and your team members actually get this done so I don't know if you want to make any further comments on how do we make people believers because sometimes you get into uh, naysayers and you think that everything is gloom and doom
1: well I think as uh, physicians as well as uh, researchers uh, it's part of our responsibility to be able to communicate these exciting news and developments to the general public I think sometimes we shy away from such opportunities and therefore, um, I would urge uh, my colleagues uh, to take a more active role in speaking to the uh, general public. As long as we are given the opportunities, uh, it, we need to communicate this to uh, people at every level in order to gain the uh, acceptance and the momentum, uh, maintain the momentum in this kind of uh, work.
0: Uh, A question from uh, Dr. Emily Germain-Lee, who's head of our Pediatric Endocrinology Division and uh, NIH-funded researcher and NASA-funded researcher, uh, just sent the mice up into space. And uh, so she's a believer. Uh, Great talk. What do you see for the future of the treatments for craniopharyngoma based on the uh, beta-catenin-based findings? Do you think it could keep the tumors at bay with avoidance of surgery radiation?
1: well that's the hope because of the location of the tumor craniopharyngioma is not easy to uh, surgically resect because it's sitting right where the hypothalamic pituitary axis as well as where the optic chiasm is so if you perform very aggressive surgery you can cause more harm and so surgeons especially in the western world tend to only do a biopsy to help with the diagnosis and then send the patient to um, radiation. Unfortunately, radiation itself is not the panacea either, because it has all kinds of uh, potential side effects associated with it. So it is true that the motivation for us to do this work is to find an agent that can slow down the growth of these cells. We think that interfering with the interaction between beta-catenin and TCF4 may be a a potential uh, avenue. But We still have to do the work, um, even though by biophysical um, analysis, we know that the compound is hitting the right uh, location in beta-cateni, but to actually demonstrate that it caused the cells to uh, slow down, we are now actively engaged in that. Hopefully, in the future, we will be able to offer something uh, different uh, to these patients
0: And then one last question, Shig, and then we have to close. Um, Can you comment on the value of uh, a partnership such as the one that we have between uh, Connecticut Children's, Yukon, and JAX, specifically in the era of genomics? How does that that make treatments more feasible, approachable? Uh, Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, based on our experience working within the pediatric oncology group, we know that this type of uh, collaboration not only between institutions, but also between uh, physicians and researchers are going to be the key uh, going forward. And therefore to take advantage of uh, many of the resources available here in Connecticut, uh, we should certainly make a concerted effort to um, move this type of collaboration forward, even within the state of Connecticut. The other thing I have been thinking about is um, how do we develop, um, I know we, we, we are already uh, setting in, in the, the plans in um, uh, building a new uh, transplant center for example bone marrow transplant but already in our discussions we pointed out that it's no longer just bone marrow transplant we need to uh, develop here in Connecticut but actually. Um, the ability to deliver different types of cell therapy which as you saw in one of my slides you can do all kinds of combinations with the immune cells to create the most uh, 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 effective uh, uh, combination to tackle these uh, uh, difficult to treat type of cancers. So I am looking forward to the opening of the transplant center, we actually want to call it advanced cell, wait a minute, advanced cell and gene therapy center, not just bone marrow transplant. So it's ACGT, the four letters of the
0: DNA molecule. Thank you, Ching. He just launched a uh, multi-million dollar campaign here, so please send your contributions right away. Uh, but, uh, I love uh, how you, you bring these issues up and uh, you, you dream, but you make those dreams uh, to fruition. So Ching, thank you again for a fantastic grand rounds. Uh, thank you again to your team and your colleagues, and uh, just re- be reminded that this is Cancer Awareness Month for all of those kids and parents. and. Uh, Thank you again. We will see you again on Tuesday uh, and this Friday for the Ask the Experts uh, session. Take care, everyone. Be safe. Bye-bye.